Indeed, the last stanza that we have just sung states words that are so true, and they fit so well with the passage we have been going through in the book of Isaiah. The last stanza of the song we have just sung says, High King of Heaven, my victory won. Friends, we have been in the book of Isaiah uh, for a while now, but especially last week we uh, looked at chapter 33 and spoke about and saw how God is the one who gives us a spoil of victory, even though there is no battle that has been declared, uh, that God has, has won the victory without even going to battle, and he gives us the spoil of that victory. Well, last week, I did something that I rarely do. I didn't finish my sermon last week. And some of you who were meticulous note-takers remember that I said I would have three points and I only gave you two. Well, today we'll talk about point three. So today we will look at the third point, and it's going to end up being a little more expanded than I prepared for last week. But let's look at the book of Isaiah chapter 33 as we are looking to the second half of chapter 33, and we are looking at the theme of Behold Our God. God's word this morning will be read from Isaiah chapter 33, and to give it context, I will read from verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you, black-looking covers. Um, you may find in those Bibles, you may find our passage on page number 593. Here's God's word for us. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler seizes. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. 
The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, behold Zion, the city of, your appoint, of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, no majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then pray, and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us see you in your beauty, and you in your majesty and your glory. Father, as we have heard your word written and read to us, Father, we pray that you would help it be expounded in a way that your voice and your spirit will reveal yourself to our hearts in majesty and glory. We pray for that to happen here this morning in our hearts. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at this last woe or message uh, of awe, a message of warning that God gives to his people. You, you see how this chapter began with the word awe. Once again, the people of God chose to rely on their own strategy to get out of trouble. We've seen them do this now time and again in this book over and over again. This time it was by trying to buy themselves out of their uh, threat from Assyria, and they thought if they could just pay the king of Assyria enough money, they could, they could make a peace treaty with him, and, uh, and their threat would be gone. And they tried to do that, but their plans failed. They ended up paying the king the tribute he requested, 
they paid a very heavy sum of money, taking even from the gold of the doors of the temple of the Lord. But after all that was paid, they were left in utter amazement, in utter distress, because the king took the money and he still came and attacked them. And God sends this message now to his people, and it's a message in the midst of utter failure. God sends them a challenge to behold God. He is a God able to destroy the invincible enemy, the enemy who has betrayed his people, God's people. He's a God on whom the people of the Lord can call to rescue. And in this text, we see God's people declare, finally, that they are ready, ready and willing to wait on the Lord. And in this passage, we see how God responds to their request, to their declaration that they're finally ready to wait on him. Today we will look at five ways, five realities of God, about God, how he responds to his people's declaration that they're ready to wait on the Lord. So as this passage challenges us to behold our God, to look at God, we see in, this, in the second half of this passage five ways in which we see God respond five things about God. God responds to exalt himself. The first truth, God responds to exalt himself. Look at verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Did you notice the now? Three times. When does this now happen in this passage? It happens after Judah's heroes are crying in the streets. It is happening after the envoys of peace weep bitterly. It is happening after the highways lie waste. It is happening after Judah was betrayed by Assyria and the covenants are broken. It is happening after the cities are despised. It it is happening after the land mourns and withers. All this was in verses 7 through 9. We might say, Lord, why do you arise after? Lord, why didn't you arise before the events in verses 7 through 9? You know, it's like calling 911 because a house is burning. And the firefighters come after the house is burned down. And you want to say, Why are you coming after? It's all burned down. Why after? Well, in Isaiah's case, it was because the people of Judah chose their own plans. They had their own solutions apart from God. And God let them experience the emptiness of their own human solutions. God let them experience firsthand where their human solutions took them apart from God. Only after they have tasted the devastation of their self-reliant plans, only after that does God respond. I love how David Jackman said, when 
the human solutions have run out, God displays his power. My friend, don't keep God as a B plan for your life. Don't keep God as a safety net after you risk your life with your own plans. If you do, he will let you taste a full portion of the emptiness of human solutions. And there'll be times when God will choose to show up after you have tasted the bitterness of those human solutions. The point of verse 10, however, is not simply to tell us that God waits, but to tell us that when, when we arrive at the end of ourselves, when we come to the end of relying on ourselves, God is ready to manifest His power. Notice what God says when He shows up in the midst of this crisis. Notice how He starts off. Now I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Did you notice that God's first words when he shows up in the midst of this crisis, his first words do not address their crisis. He doesn't say, oh, here I come. Let me take care of your problem. No, even in, even in this crisis, God's first concern is about his glory. And he wants us to see that his glory, his exaltation, is more important than getting us out of trouble. Now, if we, keep the rest of the, if we keep reading in the rest of the chapter, we definitely see that God is about to bring some lasting solutions to their troubles, some lasting uh, resolves. But even before God brings that about, his first concern is to declare that now he wants to be exalted. He's concerned to declare his own glory. That's why, friends, when we are in a crisis, we pray that, God would bring about a solution. And it's right to pray that way. And there's nothing wrong to ask God to bring about a solution to a particular crisis. But above all, and first of all, we should ask that God would glorify himself in the midst of our crisis. Even in a crisis, ask God to exalt himself through that crisis. Let our prayers start with that. Second thing that we see about God not only that he responds by exalting himself, but that God exposes self-reliance and its effects. God exposes self-reliance and its effects. Look at verse 11. God says, you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. One theologian translated this phrase in this way. Ye are pregnant with hay, ye bring forth stubble. Who is this indictment against? Who is God speaking to at this point? Something that he could be speaking against Assyria. They made plans to take over Jerusalem. But God tells them that their plans will be like chaff. And when they carry out their plans, it will be as if they give birth to stubble or to straws. In other words, their plans and their execution was wrong-headed from the very beginning. Why? Because they planned this without God. It's also possible that this warning in verse 11 is speaking against the people of Judah who have rebelled against the Lord, who up to now 
have continued to rely on themselves and on their strategy to buy a peace treaty with the king of Assyria. It's really unclear who this warning is against, but its message is very clear, and it's the same. And the message of verse 11 is making plants without God in the picture is like conceiving chaff. And when you execute your plans, it's like you're left with straws. Alec Motier, in his commentary, says, In the Assyrian crisis, the chaff and the straw represent people doing their utmost best, thinking their hardest, being their most realistic and practical, applying collective wisdom to the hard questions of life, but leaving God out. Friends, I wonder, I wonder if there are times in your own life, in our own lives, when we deal with our life this way. Perhaps you're a student and you think, if I can just work hard enough, if I can just study hard enough, and if I got a test or an exam Monday morning, let me just skip Sunday, let me just not show up to worship God, because I got, got to start, study really hard for this exam. And yeah, God will understand, God will help me. I'll just, I'm putting God to the sideline so I can work hard to, to get this exam done, to get this degree done, so I can be ready for a good education, for a good career. Or perhaps you think, if I just work hard enough and, and I'm diligent at my work, and yeah, so what if my spiritual life is suffering a bit? What if I have to just tell God to, to wait on on the sidelines until I get through the season of life, and then I'll Then I'll reach out back to God, and then he'll help me out. Oh, friends, whenever we sideline God, whenever we try to make plans, whenever we try to get through life apart from God, oh, friends, we, will, we, are, con we are conceiving chaff, and we will give birth to straws. I wonder if you realize that any plans you make apart from the Lord, keeping the Lord away, it is like conceiving chaff. Some of you this past week may have conceived some chaff. And some of you may reap some straws. Instead of reaping a harvest, we will reap, reap emptiness and disappointment. Judah got to experience that on her own skin. The peace treaty did not work. Assyria was going to see that in their own plans. Uh, that their own plans to, to lay a siege against Jerusalem was going to be chaff, and they're going to reap straws. They were going to be defeated in their siege against Jerusalem. Why? Because they were making those plans, and they were not the Lord's plans. What about you? Do you want to experience on your own what it means to conceive chaff and give birth to straws? If you want to try that out, keep planning your life apart from God. God not only exposes self-reliance, but he also exposes the effects of it. Look at verse 11. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. Your breath will, is a fire that will consume you. In other words, what will devastate them is not outside threat. It's simply what comes out of them. The danger they have is not outside themselves, but it's what's inside. Sin is like a fire. It destroys. It often destroys a lot more than you think. 
it often destroys a lot more than you want. Sin is like a boomerang. Sin ultimately comes back and affects us. Our self-reliance will consume the very people who rely on themselves. What we need to be concerned about is not merely outside threat, but what comes out of us. I wonder if you keep a close eye on yourself. When we are set on a trajectory of living life apart from the Lord, when we are set on rebelling against the Lord or ignoring the Lord, simply what comes out of us is enough to consume us. Friends, we should be more concerned not about whether or not a a shooter will come in our service and cause some damage to us. We should be more concerned what, what comes from within, not what comes from without. That's what we should be more about, afraid about. And the effects of sin is described further in verse 12. The peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. To be burned to lime was a picture showing the totality of their destruction. Nothing will be left of them. The second image speaks of how suddenly the burning will take place. Have you ever seen thorns start burning? They burn very, very quickly. The, dis- the point here is that the destruction will happen quickly. And again, in the case of Assyria, their destruction took place in one night. It's all gone. They went to bed at night, confident. The next day they will lay siege on Jerusalem. In the morning, they were gone. The tragedy of sin, said one commentator, the tragedy of sin is that it ruins the life of the sinner. The danger of sin is that it excites the wrath of God. Friends, don't underestimate the self-destructive power of sin. And don't underestimate God's determination to bring about that destruction upon those who keep God far from their lives. Yet in the midst of this warning, the warning is not the last word, and we've seen that as a pattern in the book of Isaiah. Notice what God says after the warning of verses 11 and 12. Notice what God says in verse 13. God invites all peoples to look to him. God invites all peoples to look to him. To look to him for what? To look to him for what he has done. Look at verse 13. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. In other words, the warning that God gave in verses 11 and 12, was not meant to push people away from God, but to draw them back to Him. Oh, friends, this is the mercy of God, that even as God gives warnings, He still calls all peoples to consider His might and power. No matter what they have done, no matter how they have failed uh, before God, God invites them to consider His power and might so they might turn to Him. God draws people to Him as they hear what God has done. Did you you pick on that little detail? The mere act of hearing what God has done is meant by God to bring people to Himself. But how will people hear what God has done 
if no one tells them. This is why we must be ready to tell people what God has done to rescue us from our bondage, from our slavery, to sin and death. And notice that God invites not just the nation of Israel to look to Him, but He invites all peoples. This is why we as a church should be concerned not simply with ourselves and with our church, nor simply to minister only here in Austin. As a church, we should have God's heart for the people who are near and for the people who are far off. We want to grow in having a burden that the gospel reaches all the nations that are far off. Last night I was very pleasantly surprised by a lady who came up after the program. And she said, oh, I'm so glad to know that you are from Romania. I've never met a Romanian until now. I have been praying for Romania for 44 years. Praying for the nations. Praying that God would, would spread his gospel in nations that are far off, that we may not be able to go. But for us to have a heart that God has, not only for those who are near us, but also for those who are far off. God invites all peoples to look to him. But notice what the sinners in Zion see about God when they begin considering his might and power. As they look to him, people realize a fourth characteristic about God. That God is a consuming fire. Look at verse 14. The sinners in, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? When the Lord begins to show his might, when the Lord begins to show his power, the people in Zion develop a new fear which they've not had before. Before, up to this point, they were afraid of Assyria. They were afraid of the enemy crouching in on them and, 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 and invading them. But now they, they have a different kind of fear. They realize that sinners cannot live with a holy God. They start seeing God showed up, show up on, the, on the scene of history, releasing them of their enemies, but, but they're now afraid for themselves. They realize that God is a consuming fire. This truth was told in the Old Testament, in the passage we read earlier in the, in the in the service from Deuteronomy 9, when God told Moses that, hey, I am going ahead of you to drive out the nations. And Moses tells his people, don't be afraid. Go and conquer the land. And, and don't be afraid to do it. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. He's driving out those nations, not because you are great, not because of your righteousness. It is because of their sin. It's because of their, their atrocities. God is punishing the nations because God is a consuming fire and he will go ahead of you. And God said to Moses elsewhere in Deuteronomy, he says, don't, don't fall in idolatry. Don't worship the created beings. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. This truth is not just in the, New, in the Old Testament, it's also in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Oh, friends, the
the sinners of Zion become aware that they cannot dwell with God because of who God is. They not only become aware of their sin, they become aware of God's holiness. And they become afraid and even tremble. Many today treat God lightly. Perhaps it's because they have not seen God's power or might. Perhaps it's because they don't want to see it. Either way, the challenge for us is to realize that when God shows up, and when God shows His might and His power, it causes sinners a reaction of fear and trembling. Sinners come to realize that God is like a a fire ready to consume all rebellion. Friends, this truth is important. Do we ever mention it in our evangelism? If God himself causes this reaction in the sinners of Zion, why would we be embarrassed about it? Notice how Isaiah answers a question these sinners asked. The question was, who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? And the answer is in verse 15 and onward. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. This list describes the life of the people who have been rescued from sin and transformed to reflect the character of God. It is those people who can live with the all-consuming God. The people described in this list begin to reflect the character of God in their lives. In other words, There is a change that has taken place inside them, and it shows up in their outward life. On this side of heaven, none of us can live perfectly in this way, but true Christians strive to live blamelessly before God. Now, I want to be sure you understand, none of us can get access to God by our own perfection. If that was the condition to get access to God, no one would be accepted before God. We are given access to God only through the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus was the one who was sentenced to death. And through his death on the cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God for all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that his death has paid the penalty of sin in full, and Jesus obtained for us a righteousness and a perfection that we do not deserve. A righteousness and a perfection that we could never live up to in our own strength. Friends, all those who turn away from their ways of life, from their sin, from their rebellion, all those who turn to God through Christ are given this perfection of Christ. And once we're given that perfection, we're called to live it out. But we cannot live it out without first turning to God by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. If anyone is here this morning has not yet responded to the gospel call, I want to encourage you today to turn to the Lord. Turn away from your sin and turn to God in Christ. And it is through that that the Lord will begin in you a new life and you will begin living the transformation that is required so that we may live 
with God. The people of Zion who realize that God is a consuming fire come to hear that even through, though God is a consuming fire, even though He is a God who will consume all rebellion, He opens the gate for sinners to dwell with Him. And the only way for sinners to dwell with God is if their sin is dealt with. And once their sin is dealt with, it shows up in a transformed life. I love how one person said, if you are going to follow Jesus, He will bring out changes in you. We cannot meet Jesus and stay the same. And this is, this is in some way, what these verses tell us. Who can dwell with God? It's those whose lives have been transformed by the power of God. And then there's a fifth point in this passage about God. God promises a new reality. God promises a new reality. Once people come to realize their sinfulness, once people come to realize the, the holiness of God and the need for transformation, notice what God promises them. First, God promises them a vision of their king in his beauty. Look at verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Now, earlier in Isaiah, God has promised that a king will come. And God told them what will characterize that king. Now, God tells them that they will see the king and they will see him in his beauty. At this point, we don't know exactly who this king is supposed to be. But before the chapter ends, it becomes very clear who this king is. It's going to be the Lord. They get it. Second of all, look at what, what, this, what they will see, what God promises them. Not only they will see the king, but they will see the land of this king. The land with no more enemies. Look at verse 17b. They will see a land that stretches afar. In verse 18, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? In other words, the past bondage will be gone. They remember the time. They remember the time when they paid the tribute to the king of Assyria. A heavy tribute that meant nothing. And now they, they'll get to the place where we'll say, where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? It's gone. All that is a matter of the past. In verse 19, you will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. In Isaiah's time, these were the Assyrians. In other words, the rule of the new king will bring a dominion free from their past mistakes, free from their past terrors, free from their enemies, and free from their dominion and, and threat of, uh, of enemies. These are all a matter of the past. And God not only promises them a king and a new land, God promises them a vision of a new city. Look at verse 20. Behold, behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Now, just pause there. Up until now, what they have seen was a Jerusalem that was besieged. Here's what God promises them to, that they will see. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled city, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. The picture of a Jerusalem 
as an immovable tent is significant. God has called his people to live in a tent when he brought them out of Egypt. And the tent was supposed to move every time the Lord was moving with them, right? Now, God says Jerusalem is a tent that will no longer be moved. In other words, it means that their journey has come to an end. The tent will now become permanent. Their journey, they'll never have to pick up on a journey again. This is the final Jerusalem. This is the final destination. And what makes this city special is not simply its peace and permanence, but the fact that the Lord will be in majesty in that city. Notice how the Lord will be for his people. Look at verse 21. But there, in that city, but there, the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galleys with oars can go, no majestic ships can pass. These are pictures. Pictures of what? Well, pictures of Jerusalem as a city surrounded by waters, by broad rivers and streams. Well, in ancient times, that communicated safety. But here, in this picture, notice who will be for Jerusalem, the broad rivers and the streams. The Lord. The Lord in His majesty will be for people. These, this, this picture of broad rivers and streams. In other words, the Lord will be a place of safety in that city. Just as broad rivers and streams provide safety to a city. But there's another picture. That on these rivers and streams, no galleys with oars can go and no majestic ships. Now that's an interesting picture. What is that supposed to mean? It's supposed to mean that that city will not need to have any tradings with the outside world. The Lord will be enough for that city. No more external commerce. No more needing to go outside the walls of that city to get what you want. Everything will be in that city. The Lord will be in there and they will need nothing else. No external resources needed, needed because the Lord will be for them all that they need. Now friends, just consider that reality. In that promised city, people will need nothing else outside the city. The Lord will be enough for them. Could you say that? Could we say that about the Lord now? And notice several other descriptions, how they will see the Lord in that day. They say, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Friends, is this how you cherish the Lord now? Do you boast in the Lord for being your judge? Do you boast in the Lord for being, for being your lawgiver? Do you boast in the Lord for being your king and your savior? All these promises, however, are possible only if Judah recognizes that apart from the Lord, they are like a boat with broken sails that can go nowhere. This is a picture of verse 23. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Apart from the Lord, dear friends, our lives are like a boat with broken sails, able to go nowhere. But when people turn to the Lord, He graciously gives them the spoil of victory 
and even to the people who don't deserve it. Actually, only to the people who don't deserve it. In verse 23, then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. God wins the victory. God is the one who, who overcomes the enemy. And he offers a spoil of victory even to the lame, to those who can't fight for it. Oh, friends, God's salvation is given to those who don't work for it. The spoil of this victory that the king will share is described in verse 24. No more sickness, no more sin. Look at verse 24. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Friends, can you imagine a city that guarantees no more sickness for its inhabitants? Can you imagine if such a city existed on this earth, on this side of heaven? Can you imagine how fast people would seek to move into that city? We're amazed that people move to Austin in such rapid numbers. Can you imagine a city of which God says, no one will say in that city, I am sick. Friends, no earthly city, no earthly city can offer its inhabitants these promises. No city can eliminate sickness. No city can grant forgiveness of sins. But the king to whom Isaiah directs our attention points us to his dominion and to his city. And it's a city unlike any other we have seen before. It's a city that promises no more sickness and no more sin. All this will be seen and experienced by God's people. They will see their king and their new city. And sinners are invited to live with this king who is the majestic God. This new city will be self-sustaining, not depending on anything outside of itself. Nor will it have need of doctors, nor will it have need of any more priests, because God will be in it. No more sickness and the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, all this started, all this started in chapter 33 with people turning to the Lord. And asking the Lord to be gracious to them. For they have chosen to wait on the Lord. And to make the Lord their arm and their salvation. And we have seen how the Lord responded. Five truths. The Lord responded by exalting himself. Exalting himself. The Lord responded by exposing self-reliance and its effects. The Lord responded by inviting all people to look to him. And as they looked to him, sinners began realizing that God is a consuming fire. And the Lord promises to restore them by giving them a king and by giving them a city. As God restores them, they get, God gives them a, a vision of the king, of his dominion, and of his city. And in that city, the people of God have a new confession. That God is their judge. That God is their lawgiver. That God is their king. They have confidence that this king is the one who will save them. Oh, friends, I pray that our hearts will long to see that king, that our hearts will long to see his dominion, and that our inhabitant, our dwelling, will long to dwell in that city. I pray that our hearts will grow in looking at God and behold him. Not just today, 
not just this week, but for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Father, you have promised your people glorious realities in the midst of their tragic events, in the midst of their utter disappointment, in the midst of being betrayed, in the midst of being broken and devastated. You have promised to show up. And you have given your people reasons to look to you. Father, help us. Help us to live lives that behold you continuously and hold on to the promises and to the visions that you give to your people. Father, we look forward to the day when all those visions will become reality and all our faith will become sight. Until that day, O oh Lord, help us to continue to have our eyes fixed on you. In the name of Christ, we pray.